Okay, greetings, everyone. It's the most wonderful time of the year. When we start uh, putting up decorations for Shepherd's Conference and the banners get hung on the pillars, I don't know what it is, but every year I wind up humming. It's just the best part. Um, so glad to see all of you. Thank you all for being here. Um, I have a handout that I, I, I made I made 100 copies of, and uh, then in the middle of my copying was told, oh no, the, we'll just put them on the app, and this way we don't have to waste the paper and everything. Um, so I don't know how true that statement was. Uh, I just called someone, and he said he was going to look into it. So either you have one of the 100 that I sent, and you can maybe group, group together and uh, look over somebody's shoulder, or it'll come up on the app, or in the middle of this, somebody will show up with a hundred more of them or something like that. It is on the app. Praise the Lord. Okay. So yeah, how, how do you get it? I wouldn't even know how to tell them how, how to get it. Okay. Looks Yeah, thank you. Looks like this. It says uh, documents under it. Triune Salvation Handout. Sweet. Well, wonderful. I'm glad that that's working. And welcome to the guys who are, who are coming in. Boy, I am thrilled to see all of you. I, I'm looking at that lineup and going, well, maybe me and David will hang out together, you know. Well, uh, I knew he said he was coming, but it might be alone. But, so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. Uh, let's ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we do thank you for the cross. We thank you for a perfectly sufficient, mighty, triumphing Savior who accomplishes uh, everything that he sets out to accomplish and freely gives it to us who so desperately need it. We know that that is owing to your gracious, loving choice of us, entirely independent of anything about us from eternity. Grace was granted to us in Christ Jesus before the worlds began. And uh, what what a true privilege to live as followers of Christ, as worshipers of God, And then on top of that, to be called into your ministry to serve your people. And on top of that, then to get the privilege to come to something like this, where we are just refreshed by one another and can encourage one another in the the labor of the ministry, which is, of of course, a labor of love, uh, but which demands every ounce of our soul. I pray that you'd refresh the men uh, this, this week. And Father, that you would even use this uh, seminar to be a means of encouragement, something that is intellectual, something that is even polemical, but something that vindicates truth that you have revealed and thus mean for our benefit, intend for our benefit. Now, may we receive the benefit of your word even in this hour, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the title of the seminar is Triune Salvation, Why the Unity of the Trinity demands a definite atonement. And as I said, handouts are circulating and or are on the app. Um, And we have less than an hour. So the first thing that I need to say is that this seminar will not be an exhaustive defense of the doctrine of definite atonement. Uh, For that, you will need to read John Owen's Death of Death and the Death of Christ. It's in the book tent. Go get it. It's at the Banner of Truth table. And uh, you could also get Crossway's From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, which is a 700-page anthology of essays on the doctrine of definite atonement. I believe that Crossway has that. If they don't, shame on them. But uh, some that you can get it online, I'm sure. 
But uh, I can't say everything there is to say about this. And so I know that there will be some who would say, well, what about this verse? Or what about that argument? And uh, I I get that. And uh, just recognize that what this seminar is aiming to do is to take one argument for the doctrine of particular redemption and argue for it in some detail. There is a common stalemate that we reach in discussions over the extent of the atonement. And I think it results, that stalemate, ironically, from focusing too much on passages of Scripture which comment directly on the scope of Christ's sacrifice. You say, well, wait a second, how can that be? That's what we're talking about. But it's because of statements like Mark 10.45, which says Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. Compared with statements like 1 Timothy 2.6, which says he gave himself as a ransom for all. Both verses use almost identical language, give his life a ransom, gave himself a ransom, right up until the, the comment on the extent of that ransom. And one verse says many, and another verse says all. And there is no way around that stalemate if we just, if both sides just stack the commentators who say all means many against the other commentators who say many means all. Taking isolated proof texts and volleying them back and forth, many, all, church, world, just fails to move the discussion forward in any helpful way. And the key to breaking that stalemate is to set those isolated texts in the larger context of all of Scripture's teaching concerning not just the extent of the atonement, but also the design and nature of the atonement. If Scripture is clear that God designed the atonement not merely to provide a salvation that could be accepted or rejected, but instead actually to save... And if scripture is clear that the nature of the atonement was not that Christ's death merely makes salvation possible, but actually accomplished the salvation for those for whom he died, then when we come to two virtually identical texts where one says all and another says many, we have sound biblical reasons for interpreting all as, for example, all without distinction, rather than all without exception. What happens? The clear biblical teaching on the design and the nature of the atonement helps us interpret less clear biblical teaching on the extent of the atonement. But what does the Trinity have to do with the extent of the atonement? Well, the reality is you can't speak of the one doctrine without the other. The the atonement is what the Savior does to save sinners. But the Trinity is who the Savior is, who saves sinners. The Savior who saves by the atonement is the triune God, one and only one God who subsists in three co-equal, consubstantial, co-eternal persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The triunity of God is the fundamental doctrine of Christianity. It is the heart of the Christian faith. There is no Christianity without it. Because there's no Christianity without God. And the Trinity is who God is. Herman Bovink captured it well when he wrote, The entire Christian belief system, all of special revelation, stands or falls with the confession of God's Trinity. It is the core of the Christian faith, the root of all its dogmas, the basic content of the new covenant. Elsewhere, Bovink wrote, Every theological error, results from 
or upon deeper reflection is traceable to a departure in the doctrine of the Trinity. And I find that to be true even in the case of the doctrine of the extent of the atonement. Could it be that the reason that the church is so deficient in its understanding of our own salvation is because we're deficient in understanding the nature of our triune God? You see, because the Trinity is the fundamental doctrine of Christianity and because the gospel is the central message of Christianity, the two are inextricably linked. The gospel is essentially and fundamentally Trinitarian because the God who saves is Trinitarian. And all that God does is grounded in who God is. All of God's saving acts are rooted in his triune being. The father plans and sends the son. The son comes and lives and dies and rises again to atone for sins And the Spirit renews and regenerates and applies what the Father has planned and what the Son has accomplished. Salvation is Trinitarian. And so if the key to breaking the stalemate in the debate over the extent of the atonement is to consider how the design and nature of the atonement bear on its extent, well, this afternoon we'll consider something of the design of the atonement by studying the designer of the atonement. And the designer of the atonement is our triune God. And I want to state my argument right up front. should be there in, your, in probably the second page of your, out, your handout there. Just so that you know what I'm setting out to prove. Here's the argument. Because the Father, Son, and Spirit are perfectly united in their essence, the three persons of the Trinity must be perfectly united both in their saving intentions and in their saving acts. What the Father wills must be what the Son wills, and what the Son wills must be what the Spirit wills. Those whom the Father intends to save must be the same exact number as those whom the Son intends to save, and those whom the Son intends to save must be the same exact number as those whom the Spirit intends to save. And since Scripture teaches that the Father has chosen to save a particular people, and not all without exception. And since scripture teaches that the spirit will regenerate that same particular people and not all without exception, it also teaches that the son has atoned for that same particular people and not all without exception. To say otherwise is to strike at the heart of the unity of the triune God. It is to undermine the doctrine of the Trinity, the most fundamental doctrine of Christianity. Unity in the Trinity demands a definite atonement, a particular redemption. That's the argument. And in our remaining time, I hope to prove to you that that's biblical. And so we're going to take three points to do it. First, we'll consider the triune savior. Second, the triune plan. And third, triune particularism. Point number one, the triune savior. And we've said it already. The God of the Bible, the only God who exists is one God who subsists or exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three persons are co-eternal. That is, God has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There has never been a time when one of them was not. They are co-equal, 
as well as co-eternal, which is to say that no one person is greater than the others because each one is fully God, and God cannot be greater than God. And the three persons are consubstantial, that is, they are of the same substance, the same essence, the same being, the very identical self-same nature. And what is that nature? It is the divine nature. It is godhood. And that godhood is not divided among the three persons, such that the Father has a piece, and the Son has a piece, and the Spirit has a piece, and then they all come together and they make God. By your powers combined, I am Captain Planet for all of you 90s kids. (laughs) Now, that would be to say that each person is merely a part of God. In, in that case, you couldn't say the Father is God, period. You'd have to say, well, the Father is part of God, and when he makes up God, when he gets together with the Son and the Spirit. No, all three persons of themselves are fully and truly God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. Another way of saying that is that each person of the Trinity fully subsists in the undivided divine essence. I would recommend that each one of you memorize that phrase. That is a, an ancient confession that each person of the Trinity fully subsists in the undivided divine essence. If I said, give me the Trinity in a, in a phrase, 3 a.m. test, go, that's what should be on your mind. And if Augustine knew that we couldn't all say that, he'd slap us. Or maybe that'd be St. Nicholas, right? <laughs> and that means that each person fully subsists in the undivided divine essence. That means, though the persons of the Trinity can be distinguished from one another, they can never be divided from one another. There is tri-unity. The being of God is indivisible. Well, one of the implications of the indivisibility of God's being is the indivisibility of God's actions. All of God's acts are grounded in the Trinitarian life of God himself. In other words, God does what he does because he is who he is. And so if God's being can never be divided, neither can God's works be divided. This is what the tradition has called the doctrine of inseparable operations. And what it means is that in every act that God performs... All three persons of the Trinity are directly involved because they share an identical being, an identical essence. No one person of the Trinity ever acts without the other two. They are always indivisibly working together in perfect harmony. So, for example, Scripture identifies the Father as the creator of the world. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. The Father is the one from whom are all things. And yet, Scripture also identifies the Son as the creator of the world. Colossians 1.16, by him all things were created. And further still, the, the Scripture identifies the Spirit as the creator of the world, not just hovering over the waters, giving real clear implication about that in Genesis 1, but Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of Yahweh the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, literally by the Spirit of his mouth, all their host. What's the picture? The Father creates by speaking, the Son is the word spoken, And the spirit is the breath by which the word goes forth. 
That is glorious triunity. So the Father created the world, the Son created the world, the Spirit created the world, and the point is, there are, these are not three separate acts of creation. There are not three worlds. This is how Augustine argued about it. He says, you guys are missing two worlds if the acts of the Trinity can be divided. The one act of creation is performed by the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons acting, but their acts, like their essence, perfectly united and inseparable. Now, that doesn't mean that the acts of the Father, Son, and Spirit can never be distinguished from one another. Remember, the persons can be distinguished, but not divided. And so while their works cannot be divided, they can be distinguished. Distinguishing the acts of the persons from one another came to be known as the doctrine of appropriations. The doctrine of inseparable operations must always be complemented by the doctrine of appropriations, which is to say, while no person of the Trinity ever acts apart from the other two, each divine act is properly appropriated or attributed to one of the persons in particular. And so to use our previous example, while all three persons are involved in creation, Scripture most often identifies the Father as the Creator. It attributes the work of creation to the Father more often, at least, than it does to the Son and the Spirit. For another example, it is the Son alone who is the subject of the incarnation, right? The Father and the Spirit do not take on human nature like the Son does, John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Philippians 2.5, Christ Jesus nullified himself by taking the form of a slave, but it was the Father who sent the Son into the world, 1 John 4.19. It was the Holy Spirit who conceived the child in the womb of the Virgin, Luke 1.35. And so even though the Son alone became incarnate, even the act of the incarnation is not without the agency of the Father and the Spirit. Think of it this way. The persons of the Trinity work neither in unison nor in discord, but in harmony. The doctrine of appropriations ensures that they do not work in unison because the different acts are attributed to different persons. But the doctrine of inseparable operations ensures that they are never in discord because their undivided acts are rooted in their undivided essence. In every act of God, all three persons of the Trinity must work in perfect harmony or they are not one God. And that is no less true for the work of the triune God in salvation. As I said, he is our triune savior. And I could go to a lot of texts to illustrate this, uh, but consider Titus chapter three. Hear the Trinitarian emphasis in Titus three, four. But when the kindness of God, our savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. And that reference to God there is a reference to God the Father. Verse 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So the saving Father saves us by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 6, the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly, 
through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So within a span of three verses, we're told that the Father is our Savior, that the Son, Jesus, is our Savior, and that they save through the Spirit who saves us, so that the Spirit is our Savior. And yet these are not three saviors, but one Savior. These are not three salvations. Like, did you get the Holy Spirit salvation or the Son salvation? I got the Father salvation. No, there's one salvation. Salvation planned by the Father who sends the Son. Salvation accomplished by the Son who bears our sin. And salvation applied by the Holy Spirit who regenerates us. We have texts like Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, which says, But when the fullness of the time came, God, that is the Father, sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. That's the atonement, redemption. That we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God, the Father, has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So the Father sends the Son into the world. The Son takes on human nature so that he might stand in man's place and redeem those who, because of their sin, were bound to suffer the curse of the law. And then the Spirit is sent to apply what Christ has accomplished by transforming our hearts in regeneration and putting us into possession of the adoption as sons, along with the rest of the blessings of salvation. And it's perhaps nowhere clearer than in that glorious hymn of praise in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul writes, Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, in the heaven, or blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So the plan of redemption begins with the Father's saving election of his people before time began. Before we had ever existed, the Father chose a people for his salvation. Well, how's he going to save them? Verse 7. In him. Who's the him? The end of verse 6. The beloved, the Father's beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then, verse 13, having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And so the Father chooses, the Son redeems by his blood, and the Spirit seals and sanctifies. Redemption planned, redemption accomplished, redemption applied. Our triune Savior works neither in unison nor in discord, but in perfect, glorious harmony. Second, this triune Savior saves us according to a triune plan. Number two, the triune plan of salvation. One of the greatest causes for confusion and misunderstanding concerning the nature and extent of the atonement stems from abstracting the Son's saving mission from the eternal Trinitarian plan of salvation. You see, when the Son, when the eternal Son took on flesh to dwell among men and accomplish our salvation by his atoning death, he was not acting as a rogue agent, haphazardly embarking on a mission of his own devising, divorced 
from the intentions and actions of the other persons of the Trinity. We've learned from the doctrine of inseparable operations that that would be impossible. But that's not just an implication of Orthodox Trinitarianism. It's also explicitly biblical. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus says, I'm not acting independently here. He says he self-consciously conducted every aspect of his ministry in strict accordance with the will of the Father. And that will of the Father was made known to the Son in the eternal counsel of the Trinity, in which the Father, Son, and Spirit devised a triune plan to rescue fallen humanity from sin and death. And we see Scripture testify of this triune plan in several ways. I give you three. Number one, several passages speak of the saving work of the Son as being divinely predetermined. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is speaking of the gospel that, he, that was accomplished in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, where he reveals the mystery long hidden you know, of the, that makes the Jew and Gentile one. And in verse 11, he says that gospel was accomplished in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is to say that Christ's redemptive work was carried out according to a predetermined plan, namely the Father's purpose, which he designed in eternity past. And so at the Last Supper, when Jesus was telling his disciples that he would soon be betrayed in Luke twenty-two, twenty-two, he said, for indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. Well, determined by whom? Determined by the triune God's eternal purpose or plan. Acts 2.23, Peter preaches his Pentecost sermon, and he says that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And so scripture makes clear that all of the son's atoning work was carried out according to this eternal divine purpose or plan. Secondly, there are a number of passages that identify Jesus' mission as a matter of obedience to the Father's will, which clearly implies that this will had been made known to the Son in a prior agreement. We've already seen John 6, 38, I've come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John 10, 18, when he speaks of laying down his life as a sacrifice for sin, what does he say? This commandment I received from my Father. In John 4.34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So the Father who sent me has given me a work to accomplish, and that's why I'm here. This is what I'm doing. Whatever he has told me to do. See the same truth at the close of Jesus' ministry in John 17. As he prepares to return to the glories of fellowship with the Father, he prays to the Father, John 17, 4, I glorified you on the earth. How did you glorify him, Jesus? Having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. I'm preaching the lights out. Hey, I'll take it either way. You don't have to turn it back on for me. I'm good. But if you do, it's fine. Um, I've glorified you having accomplished the work you've given me to do. So whatever the son intended to accomplish on his saving mission, it was precisely that purpose for which the father had sent him. Number three, there are several passages of scripture that outline the roles 
that the Father, Son, and Spirit would take on in this enactment of the, of the triune plan of salvation. We could go so many places for the sake of time. Let's go to Isaiah 53, where we've already seen in Ephesians 1 that the plan begins with the Father's choice to rescue certain sinners from damnation. If we had time, we could go to Isaiah 42, where the Father says he's going to send the Son into the world to accomplish salvation and that he'll anoint him with the Holy Spirit. But in Isaiah 53, we find that the Father will send the Son into the world, verse 12, specifically to intercede for the transgressors by bearing their sins, which he will do by pouring himself out to death. And after all of this, the the Father promises to reward the Son for his work, verse 10. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. Verse 12, therefore I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong. So the father anoints the son with the spirit, sends the son to die for sinners and promises to reward the son for his work. That's the father's role in the plan of redemption. What's the son's role? Well, he'll take on human nature. He will live in the weakness of human flesh. He will suffer. He will bear the sin of many by dying in their place. Then he will take up his own life again by rising from the grave. And though we don't see it in Isaiah 53, we learn from the rest of scripture that the spirit's role is to conceive the son in Mary's womb, Luke 1.35, to empower the son through his, his life and ministry, And so we see at Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descends on him as a dove, Luke 3.22. We're told in Luke 4.1 that Jesus was led about or led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. Luke 4.14 says that after he emerged from his temptations, he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Matthew 12.28, the Spirit empowers Christ to perform miracles. Hebrews 9.14 says that in his death, Christ offered himself without blemish to God through the eternal Spirit. Romans 8, 11 says the spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And then apart from supporting the mission of the son from his conception to his death and even through to his resurrection, the spirit then comes and applies the salvation that the son has accomplished through his regenerating work. So to summarize, in this plan, the father appoints the son to be the mediator for those whom he's chosen. And he sets the terms for the son's mediation. He'll have to bear man's nature in order to bear man's curse. The son voluntarily, freely accepts this role as mediator and carries out his entire saving mission according to his father's will. The spirit agrees to be the agent of conception in the incarnation to support Christ throughout the execution of his saving mission and then to apply what Christ has accomplished to those for whom he accomplished it. So what does all of that teach us? These realities demand a perfect and complete unity of purpose and intention in the saving will and the saving work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Though the three persons have distinct roles, the Father electing, planning, and sending, the Son living and dying and rising, the Spirit empowering the Son and applying His accomplishments, nevertheless, the external works of the Trinity are undivided. No person of the Trinity works or wills out of accord with the others. No, they don't work in unison, but they do 
Indeed, they must work in harmony and never in discord. The slightest rift in the saving will of the Father versus the saving will of the Son versus the saving will of the Spirit would undermine the consubstantiality of the persons of the Trinity. It would be to say the acts are divided, so the essence is divided. And that means the election of the Father, the atonement of the Son, and the regeneration of the Spirit must be co-extensive. They must extend to the very same number of people. The extent of the Father's election is identical to the extent of the Son's atonement, which is itself identical to the extent of the Spirit's regeneration. If any one person of the Trinity acts to save more or fewer sinners than any other member of the Trinity, person of the Trinity, they could not be said to be united in their saving will. And so the Father elects unto salvation, the Son redeems those same people whom the Father has chosen, and the Spirit gives life to those same people whom the Father has chosen and whom the Son has redeemed. So, what's the question that must be asked? If the Son redeems all those and only those whom the Father has chosen, whom has the Father chosen for salvation? Has the Father chosen all without exception to be saved? Or has he chosen a particular people to be brought to himself in salvation? Well, is the Father's election universal or particular? The answer is it's particular. In the inscrutable wisdom of the triune God, the Father has chosen to save some and not all from the just punishment of their sins. And so that brings us to our third point. We've seen the triune Savior Just now, the triune plan, we come third to triune particularism. Triune particularism. How do we know the Father's chosen only some for salvation and not all? Well, Romans 8, 29 and 30 says that everyone the Father chose, all whom he foreknew and predestined, these he also called justified and glorified. But as sad as it is to say it, not all without exception will be called justified and glorified. Hell will not be empty. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13, that the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. So if everyone who is predestined and chosen is eventually justified and glorified, and if not everyone is justified and glorified, then not everyone has been chosen by the Father for salvation. Following chapter makes that abundantly clear. Romans 9, 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I what? Hated. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Verse 21, God is the potter and man is the clay. And as the potter, verses 22 and 23, the father has fashioned both vessels of mercy whom he prepared for glory and he has fashioned vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. And I know those verses raise a lot of questions, but my only point here is that they prove that the Father has not chosen to save all without exception. These are ves- there are vessels of mercy, and then there are vessels of wrath. And every objection against a particular redemption could be charged against a particular, re- a particular election. You say, you know, it's not fair for Jesus to die for only some. Well, according to that reasoning, it's not fair for the father to choose only some. But you tell him that. 
You say, everybody deserves a chance to be saved. What chance do they have if the son doesn't die for them? But, but what chance do they have if the father doesn't choose them? Is it even hypothetically possible for one whom the father has not chosen to be saved? Not, on, not if the father's election is determinative of salvation. Well, but how can you preach the gospel to people that Christ hasn't died for? Well, how can you preach the gospel to the people that the father hasn't chosen? I don't know who those people are. I preach to all of them in the confidence that everyone who comes in faith will be saved. So every objection that you would advance advance against a particular redemption can also, with consistency, be advanced against a particular election. Did I say that the right way? Every objection you could advance against a particular redemption can be advanced against a particular election. But Scripture is explicitly clear that the Father has chosen some and not all, that there are vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. And so the objection proves too much if it was allowed to stand means something in the rationale of the objective, objection is unbiblical, is untrue. So, if the Father's election is particular and not universal, and if the Father and the Son are perfectly united in their saving will and purpose, and, and indeed, since the Son's saving mission is nothing other than the Father's appointed means to save those whom he's chosen, then it's impossible that the son's atonement should be universal and not particular. The son's incarnation and atonement are birthed out of the father's choice to save a particular people. And I love the way that the theologian Robert Raymond captures this. He says, it is unthinkable to believe that Christ would say, I recognize, Father, that your election and your salvific intentions terminate upon only a portion of mankind. But because my love is more inclusive and expansive than yours, I am not satisfied to die only for those you have elected. I'm going to die for everyone. That is unthinkable. And yet, that's exactly what you must confess if you deny a particular redemption while holding to a particular election. Said another way, if the atonement is universal, then either election is also universal, which we've established just now is not the case, or the Father and the Son are at cross purposes with one another. But cross purposes with one another? The Father and the Son? Those who subsist in the single, undivided, divine essence, divided in their saving purposes? Contradicting one another? It simply cannot be. Not only does Jesus himself say, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, but you would sooner divide the Trinity than find the Father and the Son with different wills trying to accomplish different purposes with different people. And yet, isn't that exactly what you have in Arminianism? The Father looks down the corridors of time, foresees those who will freely choose him, and then chooses to save them, the ones who will choose him. The Son atones for all people without exception who have ever lived or will live. And then the Spirit works to persuade the hearts of only those people who hear the gospel. But since not all without exception hear the gospel, and since some who do hear the gospel reject it and won't finally be saved, then you've got the Father choosing one group, the Son dying for another group, and the Spirit Uh, working in the lives, we could say, of still another group. 
The Father, only those who eventually believe. The Son, everybody without exception. And the Spirit, only those who hear the gospel. That's a divided trinity. I got my team, Father. Who's your team? No way. A universal atonement, when you think about it carefully enough and tease out its implications for the rest of Christian theology, fatally undermines the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, we can rejoice that not everybody who is is wrong about things is consistent logically with the entailments of their position. But if one was consistent with a, a universal atonement, undermines the doctrine of the Trinity. It introduces dissonance and discord where there can only be harmony. It strikes at the very heart of the Christian faith itself. And so I say unity in the Trinity demands a particular redemption. Saving will of the Father is expressed in his particular election. He's chosen some and not all to be saved. Then the son explicitly states he's come to do the will of his father who sent him. The reason Jesus believes he's on earth is to accomplish this specific mission that his father gave him. Again, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I have come down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me. Well, if the father's will circumscribed and conditioned every aspect of Jesus' saving work, what was the father's will as Jesus understood it? And here you look at John 6, 39, which I believe is also in your handout. Verse 38, I'm here to do the will of him who sent me. Boy, I wonder what Jesus thinks the will of him who sent him was. John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me. Awesome. <laughs> Listen to this, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Jesus does not say that the will of the Father is that he go out and try to save as many people as possible, so long as he's a gentleman and respects their free will. (laughs) He does not say that the will of the Father is to pay for the sins of everyone who's ever lived in order to make their salvation possible. No. He says that there exists a group of chosen individuals whom the Father has given to the Son. Remember Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him. The father chose his elect in his son. To choose to save someone in the son is to choose to, to save them by the son's work, to appoint the son to be their savior. So for the father to choose to save individuals by appointing the son to be their mediator, Jesus says, is for the father to give those individuals to the son. And Jesus says, of all that he's given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Jesus is not providing the possibility of salvation for everybody. He is effectually saving all those and only those whom the Father has given him, ensuring their resurrection to the last day. I will lose none for whom I die, Jesus says. And yet, friends, do people die lost? In their sins? Indeed they do. If Jesus says, I lose none for whom I die, and people die lost, then he didn't die for every single individual. There exists a group of chosen individuals whom the Father has given to the Son, and it is on their behalf, he says, that he accomplishes his redemptive work. And Jesus talks about this all over the place. Two two verses earlier in John 6, 37, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So who's going to believe in Jesus? 
You say, well, anyone who decides of their own free will to believe in him. Not what Jesus says. Jesus says the ones who will come to him in faith are the ones the Father chose before the foundation of the world and gave to the Son. And then John 10. You're very familiar with the the good shepherd. John 10, 14. He's the good shepherd who knows his sheep. Verse 15, he lays down his life for the sheep. And then just a few verses later in verse 29, he says, My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So here Jesus identifies those whom his father has given him as the same people as his sheep. It's the same group. And John 10, 15 says, I lay my life down for the sheep. I die for the sheep. I die for those whom the father has given me. Jesus is telling us as plainly as he possibly can, I die for those whom the father has chosen. And some people say, well, sure, he says he dies for his sheep, but that's because he dies for everybody. And that includes his sheep. It doesn't say he dies only for the sheep. He's emphasizing the sheep here, but he's not excluding the rest of the world. John says that in 3.16 and all these things. There's a lot that can be said in response to that, but for now, just consider this. In verse 26 of John 10, Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Now note that. Not, you are not my sheep because you don't believe. Not... Faith would turn you into a sheep, but since you're not believing, you're not part of my sheep. No, the reason you don't believe, Pharisees, is because you are not of my sheep. Being a sheep is what causes faith, not vice versa. You're not among those whom my father has chosen before the foundation of the world. You're not among those whom my father has given to me. So for Jesus to say, I lay my life down for my sheep, and then to immediately identify certain people as those who are not of his sheep is to say almost as plainly as could be said that he did not lay his life down for those Pharisees. I lay my life down for the sheep, and you're not them. So did he lay his life down for them? No, he didn't. And even if these Pharisees whom he was talking to on that day were the only ones in history for whom he didn't die, it would still make the atonement not universal. One more text, go to John 17. This is the text of Jesus' high priestly prayer. On the eve of his crucifixion, he he prepares to undertake the capstone of his work as mediator, and he prays to the Father concerning those on whose behalf he performs his priestly ministry of atonement. And in John 17, 2, he says to the Father, you gave the Son authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And that's interesting, isn't it? If Jesus believed in a universal atonement, you might have expected him to say, well, you gave me authority over all flesh that to all flesh I might give eternal life if they would choose to believe. But no, in distinction from all flesh, the son exercises his authority to give eternal life only to those whom the father had given to him. Look at verse 6. I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. So again, in distinction from the world, but to those whom the father gave him out of the world. The disciples were part of this elect number that the father had given to Jesus. And then he says explicitly again in verse six, they were yours. 
What do you mean, Jesus? Everything belongs to God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He, he's, uh, whatever's under the whole heaven is mine, he says. But they were yours. And that's a clear indication, a reference to election. As this group belonged to the Father in a special sense, in a way that the rest of the world did not. God set his love on his people and made them his own from all eternity. They were yours and you gave them to me. And I lay my life down for the sheep that you have given me. And then again in verse 9, he once again explicitly distinguishes those whom the Father had given him from, from the rest of the world. He says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, do you hear this? The great high priest interceding before the father on behalf of those for whom he would offer himself as an atonement for sins the next day is explicitly denying interceding as a priest for the rest of the world. I'm not praying on behalf of the world, but only for those whom the father has given me. How could Jesus refuse to pray for those for whom he's going to the cross? He couldn't. He would be a terribly faithless high priest if he did that. If he refused to intercede for those for whom he would offer himself as sacrifice. No priest in the Old Testament refused to sprinkle the blood on the altar, interceding in the Holy of Holies on behalf of anybody who brought a sacrifice. When it comes to those for whom he lays down his life as a priestly offering of atonement, he does so, he says, not for the world, explicit negation, but only for those whom his father had given to him. And so, if the son has come to do the will of the father, and if the will of the father is that the son should give eternal life to all whom the father has given him, and if the father didn't give him the world, but only some out of the world, then, redemp- then the redemption accomplished by the son is particular and not universal. This is triune particularism. Let me sum up. By virtue of their own unity of essence, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are perfectly united in their saving will and purpose. Christ has been sent by the Father and in the power of the Holy Spirit to save no more and no fewer than the Father chooses and the Spirit regenerates. The Father has elected some and not all. The Spirit has regenerated, will regenerate some and not all. For the, for the Son, if to suggest that Christ has atoned for all and not some, is to put the persons of the Trinity entirely at odds with one another. It's to be forced to say that the will of the Son is not the will of the Father and the Spirit in this matter. It's to be forced to say that they are divided, which not only threatens the consubstantiality of the persons of the Trinity, but flatly contradicts Christ's own explicit statements that he had undertaken his saving mission precisely to do the will of his father. And as the father has given to the son a particular people out of the world, it's for these who scripture calls his sheep, his own, the church, the many, that Christ lays down his life. Unity in the Trinity demands a particular redemption. Let me just say a word before I close. Those of us who care about the doctrine of particular redemption who consider it a matter of consequence and not just a banal theological argument. We care not because it's our great desire to talk to people about those whom Christ didn't die for, 
right? It's not like, well, Christ only died for some, and maybe he didn't die for you, so you go sit over there. No, not at all. What we're concerned to do is to safeguard the achievements of the cross from being emptied of their power by suggesting that Christ has died for all to save and that some are not saved. At that point, the atonement is not determinative of salvation. If Christ dies for all without exception and not all without exception are saved, then something other than the cross of Christ is determinative of salvation. And I'm just not interested in that salvation. That salvation can't save me. The cross saves. My faith doesn't save me. My faith is the empty hand that lays hold of the powerful Savior. And if if I'm trying to glorify the work of the Son by saying, it's for everybody, right? What I try to give with the one hand, I have to take away with the other because if the Son died for everybody but the death of Christ isn't determinative for salvation, who cares if he died for everybody? Something, he, if he died for Judas as much as he died for me, why shouldn't I fear that I could have the same fate as Judas? There's no consolation in a universal atonement. There's only consolation in atonement that actually atones. And there's certainly no consolation in an atonement that rends the persons of the Trinity and divides their essence and turns the gospel and the the core tenet, the core doctrinal foundation of Christianity from Trinitarian monotheism into polytheism. Unity in the Trinity demands a particular redemption. And we care about it because we want a savior who saves, not just a savior who makes possible. So... If you're interested in more, I wrote an article for the Spring 22 uh, issue of the TMS Journal. I presented basically a more detailed version of this material. And then after it, uh, I, took, uh, I examined a popular species of non-particularism. Some, it's called the multiple intentions view of the atonement. Sometimes you hear it called four-and-a-half-point Calvinism. And I, sh- I show... I mean, they re- that's what they call it. I'm not, I'm not trying to be funny. That's what they call it. Um, and so I show in that article what I consider to be the best wrong view of the atonement uh, fails, <laughs> fails to maintain the Trinitarian unity that the Bible demands. So if you're interested for that ar- in that article, there's a link at the bottom of your handout. And uh, general session will be starting soon, but I'll be happy to stay for questions.